Before we get into this session of Investors Gallery, I uh, just wanted to come in and apologize for the audio. We changed the settings on the mic to have them be a little bit more clear, and it backfired. So thankfully, Edmund, the gentleman that we are interviewing today, is mostly the one speaking, so we don't have to deal with as many microphone issues on this episode. We will change the settings back, so we'll be back to normal, and I will see you guys next Tuesday on Investors Gallery. Thanks for watching. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Investors Gallery. Um, I think with my, my, my makeshift wine here, I'm going to make this officially the most uh, bougie uh, or bougetto episode ever. Um, disclaimer, this is not wine. Uh, disclaimer number two, I don't even drink alcohol. But what happens is, and I've been knowing, noticing this as I'm going over my, my previous episodes, I'm always drinking something. And the reason for that is not necessarily I'm just always dehydrated. I'm usually coming from about four or five meetings. So I've had today five meetings, including um, a double lunch meeting. So by the time I'm getting in my seat and getting ready to interview uh, the amazing people, I was tired. <laughs> so I have uh, buy. Do they have buy in uh, Canada? The, the juice? No, I haven't heard of that. Okay, I'm gonna have to send you some. So this is, is this is just juice. So whenever you see this cup or anything bougie like that, trust me, it's just juice. But welcome everybody to another episode of Investors Gallery. We are live in my, you know what, the art gallery is on the other side of the room. This is the office and art gallery that I built in my home. And we did this uh, platform. We built this platform to be able to reach the individuals who can't reach individuals like Edmund who was going to tell his story and give us a lot of gold nuggets. I, I spoke to him just for a few minutes, uh, coincidentally, last week. And man, the, the few minutes that I got with him was gold. So I'm excited to see and listen, um, learn all the information that he's going to share with us. Edmund, I'm so excited to have you, more so because I had like a preview of what you might speak on tonight. So introduce yourself and uh, tell us your background and, and where you are now. Sure. Uh, it's a pleasure being here. Thanks for asking. Uh, uh, my background is I was uh, born and raised here in Toronto, so Toronto uh, in Canada. It's essentially where all the money is uh, is managed for our country, all the significant money. It's kind of like our Wall Street or our uh, New York City. So I was a Bay Street uh, money manager, which is our Wall Street. Both my wife and I are stockbrokers or were stockbrokers. Uh, she's still licensed. I'm, uh, I'm retired from the industry. But I was a senior partner of a private equity firm. We were managing about a half a billion of uh, assets under admin. Uh, my personal responsibility was about 70 million of that uh, for directly for clients. And I would say like the top half of my book of business was a family office. So it's like a multi-family family office. And then the rest of it was accredited investors. So a big part of it, uh, we were real estate syndicators. So we created our own proprietary real estate syndications, mostly in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So all Canadian investors, but investing in DFW. I uh, did that for about 10 years. Then I um, you know, went to brokerage as well as insurance. So I spent some time at the largest life insurer in, in Canada as well, really just to learn about estate transfers for high net worth money, um, tax effective state transfers and legacy planning. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. I've retired from the industry now and I just manage our own private family wealth. And I, I coach people on how to raise capital and investor relations. So how to raise capital for 506C uh, syndications. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot to dig into. Um, so I like to 
one of the goals that I have when I have these interviews and, and conversations, because it's really just a conversation, is I like to see the transition from how we all start life and how the, my interviewees start life and transition into what they are doing currently. So I saw military background. Do you, uh, you're a veteran? Yeah, so I spent ten years. I spent ten years in the military. Okay. Uh, I was a uh, I was a boot camp instructor, recruiter in Toronto. Uh, did a lot of those things. So uh, learned a lot in that area. I learned how to instruct, learned how to teach, and I essentially used those skills to teach myself finance. Okay, what what caused you to go from a military background, um, or as your your last platform to go into the finance? Part of it was I, I kind of stumbled in on it. So I was starting to get a, a salary and I, and I had a suspicion that learning early about money management was better than learning too late. So I figured, you know what, I'm just going to go and start reading about it as best I could. So I went to the library and I just cleared the shelf, uh, anything on business and money management. And I stumbled across a book what in the industry we call it like the Purple Bible, which is Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I, I read it when it first came out. And that was like in the, in the late 90s. And I, I was really fascinated by the concepts in it. Uh, a big part of it, I kind of joke with people, is that uh, Robert Kiyosaki says that uh, real estate is, is so, uh, so easy to get right or so relatively simple that any idiot could do it. And I joke that you know, I look in the mirror and I saw an idiot. So I figured, you know, I guess <laughs> this is going to be my thing. <laughs> so I, I focused, I really, really focused down and I dug deep and I really started to re read and learn anything I could about uh, passive cash flow, real estate investing, commercial real estate, all that type. And it turned into over a decade uh, career. Wow. Okay. So transition from military, um, tripped into finance through, through education, I will call it. Um, so from there that you just, and I don't know what it, if it would it, it's called in Canada, but did you basically go and start working on your series licenses? Yeah, it's it's the equivalent of series licenses. What we do is we call it the Canadian Securities Course. I didn't okay. start there. What I did was I was researching how to buy our own real estate deal. My girlfriend at the time, now my wife, uh, she was graduating and she has a commerce background. So I convinced her that you know, we should really focus in on cash flowing assets and investments, utilizing real estate. We we're about to buy our first deal. And I was a little nervous about doing that all on my own with no mentorship. And we came across this group. Uh, essentially, it was a, a relatively large investment club, uh, and they had been investing in real estate for about a decade at that time. So they had picked up a lot of real estate assets in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, really from the failed savings and loan crisis. So the SNL mm -hmm. crisis of the, of the 90s is where they got started, and they were looking to expand. So they were looking to hire new people to be investor relations, capital raising, all that type of stuff. So I kind of convinced my wife to apply there and, and then try out. And I met the, I met the boss. And when I met him, I discovered that he was also ex-military. So I said, well, I'm a boot camp instructor. I'm you know pretty disciplined. He said, you know what? You're a clean slate. I know you're incredibly mm -hmm. disciplined. You learn, mm -hmm. you must learn fast and you have to be able to teach what you learn. And I'd love to mentor a guy like you. So what, what really struck me is, is that at first, I would love to have been mentored by him, but he said to me, it's like, well, in order for you to be our one of our clients, you literally need to have a million dollars in investable assets, and we charge an annual fee starting at $3,000 a year, and it's like, I didn't have any of that, and I said, well, I, you know, I, I can't have a mentor, I can't get him as a mentor, but then it, it dawned on me, it's like, well, if I work for you, and 
uh, I start going up the ranks and like, well, I'll have to teach you everything that I know because you're going to represent us right. and they'll pay me. So instead of paying him, he's got to, if I work for them, they got to teach me everything they know and they'll pay me to, to learn it. So I said, you know what, I'm in. And that's how it got started. Wow, that that is a shift. Um, and for, for all those who are listening, um, so I do this a lot. This is one of my themes for all the new people, um, especially for those who got a chance to see, see me speak at uh, our investor meetup last month. Um, I very frequently stop investors, not really in the middle of their speech, but whenever I hear uh, a gold nugget, and I feel like it's kind of going over people's head because they're just kind of listening to the overall story. Um, I like to pause. So the gold nugget that I want to shine a light on is, we'll call it a trick for lack of words, but uh, a, a great way to maneuver when you do not have the resources to buy something is to join. Um, Years ago, I didn't have the money to buy a Ferrari or an Lamborghini, uh, but I still wanted to be very involved and in, in network with the people. So I volunteered at the Ferrari Festival and an Lamborghini Festival and was able to create great relationships with, you know, the Ferrari owners, the, the people who put the, the club together. And it's the same thing, you know, that, that you're speaking about having the insight to say, hey, well, I don't have a million dollars. But what's my next step of being able to be attached to this information and 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 a group of resources? So yeah, man, that that is amazing. So transition from military to the um, to uh, let's let's call it the mentorship. How did that? Or let's let's pivot. What secrets did you learn actually working in the industry? Um, raising capital and dealing with those clients that you don't see or didn't see in books uh, maybe at the time? Absolutely. So I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because that's the, the next thing that I was going to go into. So it, it's borrowing from things that you've learned from your past and bringing that into different industries like cross training. So one of the things that I learned in the military that we teach in the military is when you first enlist, keep your mouth shut because everybody knows more than you do and keep your eyes open and your ears open and pay attention to everybody else and start absorbing because the senior people are not going to be there forever. And, and as try to absorb as much experience as you can from them because eventually you'll get there. So the best way to success is mimic and, and uh, mimic a lot of the experienced people around you. So when I started with this private equity firm, I took the same kind of mentality. I kept my mouth shut. And even though I was a cold caller or as a representative, is really just to pay attention. So what I explain to people is that by nature of the investments we're dealing with, we had to deal with accredited investors, which is a million dollars in investable assets. So literally every person I was talking to was a millionaire. And what I explained to people is like, if you're lucky, you have parents that are millionaires and you get to right. see one example of how one millionaire or a couple have made their millions. Just one example. But for me, I didn't come from wealth. My, fam my family were immigrants to, to, to Canada or to North America. So I didn't get to see that. But what I did understand is, is that here is my opportunity. So when I started to interact with these millionaires, one of my, my mentor at the time, who was also a millionaire at the firm, said to me, if you get one of these millionaires or one of these successful people, if they open up, and they uh, successful people love to tell you how they did it. And if you can get one of them to open up, 
just cancel all your meetings and just let them talk for as long as they want to talk mm -hmm. and just sit there and listen. And that really resonated with me because I had learned that through my, my previous career in the military. So I spent 10 years listening to millionaires every single day. And I started cataloging and just paying attention and listening over and over and over again, seeing multiple examples and managing money for them. Till it got to the point for my last, I would say probably last five years in that, in that role, it got to the point where I got to see the similarities with all these types of millionaires. And then if I encounter a new millionaire, somebody that's new, a new prospect, as the more I interact with them, the more I can tell it's like, you know what, 90% of the stuff they're doing is exactly the same as everybody else. So I'm pretty sure that that's, you know, that's how you should be acting. But this 10% that you're doing is you're doing something different. And then I would focus in on that and then decide for myself is what you're doing in that 10%. Is it in, is it um, adding to, or is it detracting from your, your wealth success? Because nobody else does this part. And I would focus in on that. And nine times out of 10, they're, they're successful in spite of that, that part that they're doing that's different than everybody else. So I gain that huge wealth of knowledge from experience that you don't pick up in, in a book because you get to see these examples. And it, it takes like a, a sixth sense to sort of pick up and in interacting with somebody. It's like, hey, you know what? When you had this little micro things like micro expressions or doing these little tiny things that you think are inconsequential, they're actually very big because I normally don't see millionaires acting like that. Mm. What is some of the things that um, you saw quite often that attributed to the success and the wealth of these individuals? For me, it was a lot of, it, it, big part of it is mindset towards money. It's a positive mindset, a gratitude mindset, um, and it, it's it's not it, it's a mindset of abundance versus a mindset of scarcity, and mm -hmm. abundance and being very generous, not just in finance, but being generous as overall as a person, uh, being kind with gratitude or being open and, and very free with gratitude, validation, uh, other centric, uh, being other centered, not self centered. A lot of those things are things that I saw quite commonly in, in very successful people. So the um, there's a misconception of the uh, the Mr. Burns from uh, Homer Simpson. Most of them don't act like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, there are some, but I, the ones that I worked with, the ones that I interacted with. And the ones that really resonated with me are those are the ones that I described, people that are very generous and very kind, very considerate, all those types of things. How did dealing with these individuals cause you to start shifting? Because obviously it costs a lot because now you, 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 you manage your own wealth, uh, your family's wealth. What did you pick up that you started implementing on your own? I think it was really a, a difference in mindset, a, a big mindset shift. Uh, there's that, uh, it, it's almost a cliche, but there's that adage that says that you're the average of the five people you spend the most amount of time with and mm -hmm. take a look around you. And for me, I spent a decade with people that were significantly higher net worth than I was. And when you interact with that people on a day-to-day -day basis, the way that they solve problems is completely different from what I experienced. To give you an example, um, when, when we first had, my wife and I had our first kid, we hired an au pair, but I wasn't even thinking of that. So my wife was working at the same firm, same private equity firm as I was. And we were looking at it and my wife and I were making pretty close to the same amount of money. And I was saying to myself, was like, well, 
one of us, I can do everything and all the domestic responsibilities inside the house. I can look after the kids and I can do all the stuff outside the house too. I can cut the grass, I can fix the car, do everything. So I figure, and then she can only do the stuff inside the house and we're making pretty close. So I figured it's like, if we're going to take time off uh, and, and take a year off, uh, maybe she can take like three months off and I'll take the other, you know, the other months, the, you know, the, the rest of it. And that's kind of our mentality. That's the mentality of our family. That's the mentality that I, I got from my parents. So I was about to present this to our boss and our boss says, like, both of you are senior executives at this firm and we can't replace you by minimum age wage worker. But what we can do is I can hire a minimum, minimum age worker to live in your house, to look after your kid wow. and I get both of you. And it didn't even dawn on me. Like I didn't even get a chance to explain because that type of concept was completely foreign to me. So he's like, we're going to hire an au pair. She's going to work in your house and she's going to look after your kids. And you know, she, your, your wife is going to come back. So I took one month off. My wife took three months off. And then the rest of us, we're right back at, at the firm. And we had somebody, a, a caregiver that was looking at, but it, we were very uncomfortable with it because I didn't grow up with an au pair. I didn't grow up with a nanny, right? It's like I did my wife and our parents were freaking out because they never experienced that too, right? But that's an example of a completely different concept of being able to, and it made sense from a financial perspective. It's like, I don't want to lose a multiple six-figure person that, and I can't replace you with a minimum wage worker. But if I put a minimum wage worker in your house to take care of those dudes, like one of my, my mentors said to me, Ed, if you don't like cutting the grass, then understand what your hourly rate is. If you don't like cutting the grass and you're cutting the grass, you are the highest, most expensive grass cutter <laughs> on the planet. Right, because you could hire somebody at like twenty dollars an hour to cut your grass, and you right. are significantly higher than twenty dollars an hour. So farm all that stuff out, get get it dealt with. Because get back to your. Because if I'm a capital raiser, there's an unlimited amount of time I could be capital raising. Right, right. it's not like I'm a. I, I, I have set hours. The more I do it, the more capital I can raise. So they said it's like you're in hindering yourself. Don't ever do stuff that's below your waterline. Don't do stuff below you know, what your hourly rate is that you could farm somebody else to do it. Wow, that's that's very interesting. Um, I'm 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 learning that a lot. I have. I'm learning how to get out of my own way because I I struggle with uh, delegating. Um, I grew up as a do-it-yourselfer. So as growing up, you know, my dad taught me how to do um, car carpentry at the age of six and seven. So I grew up, you know, if something breaks in the house, I've been doing this since I was seven, I can fix it. You know, water leaks or something else happened or the car, um, car breaks down, I could fix it. And now I'm at the point where the hour that, you know, I spend working on a, um, uh, a pitch deck or, you know, meetings or whatever is far more significant especially as a return on investment as cutting the grass and but it's difficult because I'm like you know nobody can cut grass like we can but you know you have to that what, what do they say if someone can do it 80 percent as good as you can then go ahead and, and hire them to do it so that's yeah. awesome that you were able to um to learn those new skills uh the rich people skills <laughs> Well, here's an, interesting point that you, here's an interesting point that you just brought up. It talks about money mindset as well for people that are increasing their net worth beyond their, their upbringing. So beyond their parents. So that, that, that is an example of both my wife and I. One of the things that ends up happening is like you talked about, it's like these, these micro um, sort of comments that we would get from our parents have massive effect on us. And it still does today. 
So if I'm, uh, I, I have to, I have to hide the fact that I get the car to get fixed. Because my dad did this, it taught me how to fix the car and I, I can do it in a pinch. If I need to, then right. I can do that. But I kind of don't like doing it, being under the truck. I'd rather send somebody else out to do it because I'd rather focus in on what makes me more money. Right. But if my dad finds out, he's like, well, why don't you just change the oil yourself? And you, what do you, you can't say? It's like, I'm too good for that. It's like, well, you're too good yeah. for that. Cause I, I do. It's, like, you're too good. It's, it's that whole kind of dichotomy. Like you, you look at it and they said, well, why don't you cut your own grass? Why do you have somebody else cutting your own grass and doing all that stuff? And that has a major effect on you. So one of the things that I started to do was it was a great book by Gerald Golding called curating your life. And what she mm. talks about is being very cautious about who you grant access to. And one of the, the dangers is that if you have family, especially your parents, you still have to grant them access, but you can compartmentalize. What's so the name of the example, book again? Uh, Gerald Golding's uh, Curating Your Life. Curating and Your Life. Basically, what that means is being very intentional okay. with the people you grant access to who you are, right? So... Uh, the, the what basically ends up happening is every time I interact with somebody afterwards, I, I kind of make a mental note, did that push me further to inspire me or where there's a lot of microaggression? And the more microaggression you get, the little further I push you out to the point where you no longer get access to me at all. You're completely blocked on social media, everything, right? And it's, I don't have time for that. I'm looking for relationships that challenge me, inspire me, uh, that validate, that push me, that make me stronger and make me better. Except for when it comes to family, because there's only so far you can, <laughs> you know, you can away, especially your parents, right? Yeah. But what really changed things for me is that I was updating my parents, especially my dad, like he was a shareholder of my company and telling them this is the decisions I'm making, all this type of stuff. And he would second guess me. And some of the times there would be a lot of microaggression. And it got mm -hmm. to the point where... It was really, really damaging to me. And then, because I said, because it's coming from your dad, you're looking for your dad's approval, right? And yeah. it just dawned on me. It's like, holy smokes, I've got 20 years experience in business. My dad is yeah. a very experienced guy in healthcare, in the public healthcare system, right? So it dawned on me and asked you, like, would you, if you were running an entrepreneurial business, which is exponential growth, would you ever invite a healthcare, public healthcare professional to sit on your board of directors? It doesn't make any sense. You guys right. are completely different people, completely different right. paradigms. So it made me realize, you know what? Unfortunately, I have to cut my dad off and I have to put him in the dark when it comes to my business because he won't yeah. understand it. It would scare yeah. the living daylights out of him because he's yeah. the type of guy that's like, hey, you just work hard and every year you'll get 3%, you know, a 3% in increase. And then maybe after 30 years, you'll end up becoming a boss. And it's like, I don't do that. In yeah. the entrepreneurship world, you put a lot, you do a lot of planting, you do a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and no harvest comes, and you just got to bank on it that one day, who knows, that maybe three years. Hey, brother. <laughs> right? So my dad yes. would be looking, he's like, why are you doing all this work? Are you getting paid to do this work? Why are you doing this? What makes you think that this stuff is going to grow? And it's like, you know what? You're really hamstringing me. And I can't have, like, I already have my own doubts as it is. I can't have another person. <laughs> especially my dad telling me you're crazy it's never gonna rain you're, you're nuts and it's like i can't i like i gotta curate my life i need somebody who says you know what keep going you're, you're doing awesome and those are the mentors that i want and eventually they like, you know what this harvest eventually will come trust your experience you got 20 years business experience all high net worth money you know millionaires this is all they do so you have a leg up on everything keep planting keep planting keep planting
That's the motivation I need. Not the, are you sure you don't want to go and work in healthcare? You get a 3% raise every year. It's like, no, man, that's linear growth. That's a completely foreign concept to me. I was like, we're completely different beasts, like completely yep. different animals, right? So I highly respect my dad and for what he did. And, you know, what he ended up sacrificing his life and working hard bought me an education and bought mm -hmm. me that experience to get to where I am. But we're mm -hmm. completely different concepts of how we build wealth. Mm -hmm. his, his version of hard work afforded you your version of hard work, which is going to reap exponential results comparatively uh, the linear growth that he had. Um, and right. I also um, think that culture has a little bit to do with it as well. Um, my, my mom is Japanese. And so I get a lot of, not maybe as much as um, if I had both parents, because obviously both my parents are not Japanese, uh, but I still get a lot of the, um, the Asian um, tendencies and, and thought processes from my mom. I remember I did something that upset my mom when I was um, in my late teens and I got disowned, which is purely an Asian thing. I, my mom, you are not my son. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm not your son. You can't unsun me. Um, and I think I think everything that you're saying is consistent across the board through all cultures because every parent wants their their child to do well, but they want them to do well how their brain and their 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 current culture, their current um, upbringing tells them that the white picket fits is supposed to look like or the American dream is supposed to look like, and it's it's ever changing. Now Google is hiring people without a degree. That 20 years ago wouldn't be unfathomable. So yes, I, I strongly, if, if you couldn't tell by me uh, <laughs> going to church on you, um, it, do you know if there's any books that really dig into the mindset of entrepreneurs like that? Because you really dug into the fact of the struggles that whether you're in real estate capital raising or if you're you know trying to start a, a software company, the the doubts that we continue continuously have amongst ourselves in our own mind of is this really going to work? Is this we see every it works for everybody else who's put the, the 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 passion and the blood, sweat, and tears in. But do you know if there's any other outlets that digs into that as well that kind of helps? support some of our, our thinking and mindsets yeah there's there's a couple of books that come close that don't necessarily go right into it i think really because it's unique to the individual it's unique to your okay. situation it's unique to your challenges and what you're trying to accomplish um and i think that the the real answer would come from coaching and through mentorship and to have somebody who's more experienced going, because there's just so many nuances to it. But having said that, there are some really good books. I, I was thinking about mindset that, that come to mind um, and why money mindset is so important that when it comes to business success and when it comes to wealth success, one of the things that I start off with and I explain to people is that that type of success starts in your head. You have to be able to see it in your head first before and imagine it and then take it on as an identity before you can ever execute it. And if it is never like if you if you can't believe it in your head, then you won't be able to execute it. It goes back to that adage. It's basically an a, a expansion of that Henry Ford thing, a comment, which is, you know, if you believe you can do it or you can, you're right. 
You're right. Right. Yeah. So it really depends on your, that importance of that mindset. Where I learned that was uh, I ended up having a client that was a $25 million lottery winner. One of the most challenging clients I've ever had. The reason being is, is that money mindset is kind of like a, a vessel, like a cup. If you have a little teacup and you put $20 million into that teacup, it's just going to spill out all over. And eventually you'll just have this tiny little teacup again, right? And there's a, you can even look up the stats, but I think that the a millionaire or a lottery winner is the highest percentage of millionaires that will end up becoming bankrupt within three years. $25 million, that's legacy money. That should be three generations worth of money if you, if you learned it properly. Same thing right. happens to pro ballers, right? Pro ballers, same thing. $25 million contracts and they're 25. It's like, how come you're bankrupt at 30 when you retire or 35? Right. You know, how many pro ballers end up becoming retired or end up becoming bankrupt? It's because they don't have the proper money mindset. And a really good book that talks about that is Jen Sincharo's book, um, You're a Badass at Making Money. And what she talks about is these concepts that if you subconsciously say in your mind, uh, all the wealthy people, the, the, you know, all the, the horrible wealthy people or rich people are the problem with this world. If you say that subconsciously, what you're saying is that if you go out and you start amassing wealth, you'll start mm. to have this turbulence within your life subconsciously because you'll start, you, you demonized wealthy people all your life. Or if you've heard that from your parents and then if you start to make money, you'll start to spend it or get rid of it. Sub, subcon and you don't even know why. It's because you've put on those mantras. So little mm. things like that, right? So that's the difference of what you've seen. So being able to, in your mind, recognize, well, what does wealth and what does money mean for you? And how do you have a healthy money mindset? How do you get the proper coaching and the proper mentorship to change that sort of perspective of positivity when it comes to wealth and the positive things wealth can represent? Mm, that's amazing. Um, I want to get into, I want to I tiptoe around capital raising. And the reason why I say tiptoe is because um, you're a coach and, and even though you wouldn't, I don't want you to give all of your fruit away. I want you to, to, to be able to drop some seeds on us and um, you know, provide information. And I, it will be, so your information will be on YouTube. It will be on 20 different podcast sites. Um, and as well as the, the social media platforms, um, they will be able to uh, get in contact with you uh, if, if they have interest in joining your program. But um, I still want to get into as much information as possible. Um, the second part is, as I said in the beginning of the, uh, the podcast, we're here and I built this platform so individuals who don't have access to individuals like you can now have access to individuals like you through this medium. And that's why we do it live. So they can ask you questions while you're here, while you have a few minutes, you know, with us now. Um, can you go into um, some processes, uh, some thought mindsets that we need to have, uh, but more specifically actionable items um, contacting family offices, investors. If you if you read enough, if you meet enough people, you get to understand the marketing and the branding of meeting what, what we call retail investors. Um, but speak about uh, more of the the PE side, which is private equity for those who are not in the industry and the family office. What are the actionable items and thought processes and, and mindsets that we should have going into those? 
Yeah, absolutely. That, those are great questions. And one of the things that I want to explain for people is, is that in the private equity space, especially when you get to family office, that's pro, that's the pro league. Um, and you've got to do, you've got to work up to it. So you can't really go from backyard house league uh, pickup ball all the way to the NFL and just, just shortcut it, right? You've really got to do a lot of work up. So some of the things that you got to get into is pick a side. So if you're going to play pro ball, you've got to specialize in offense or defense. You can't play both. You think it's just a bunch of big guys and they're pushing people around. And it's like, well, no, if you really pay attention, there's a specific side and you specialize in offense and defense. So um, the same thing goes for private equity. Once you start to really get serious about it, pick a side. And the, the two sides are capital raising and investor relations, which is all client facing, or asset management. Right, which is going and prospecting properties, looking after the asset. And the reason why I say that you've got to pick one of those sides is because you will be up against other PE firms with people that specialize. It's kind of like going into the NFL. It's like, you know what? I'm going to play both sides. It's like, well, you're going to be up against a lineman that plays offense only. And then you're going to go play a principal that plays defense only. And you're going to miss cues. Same thing happens is that if you're playing, like if you're trying to raise capital, but at the same time, you're going to go and try to look after property or prospect for property, you're going to be up against a guy like me that only goes in and finds clients. So you're going to miss some of the cues that I pick up on and focus in on it and become a specialist at that. So understand where your strengths are, where your default strengths are, and then pick that side and become a specialist on that side. Mm. And then work your way up. And I wouldn't say start with family office. I would say like get some experience behind you first and then move your way into family office. Uh, that's probably the best way to go or have a lot of mentorship, have some board of directors, have good governance. All those things are things that family offices are going to look for. Mm -hmm. See, I knew, I knew you was going to drop some bombs. <laughs> I, I was expecting it. Because um, we, we talked about this a little bit last week and... Um, the limited knowledge I have, like I, I tell everyone, even though I, I teach and I coach, I'm not a guru. Don't try to be a guru and you can learn something from a dummy. Um, but I knew that, I mean, 15 years of experience um, and you can hear it in the ease of, Hey, this is just before you even start, this is how you need to position yourself. So I, I appreciate that. Um, we'll, what would you suggest for a newbie investor? Because I think it's, uh, as I glanced, um, I don't have it up now, um, but there's a lot of individuals or maybe a few individuals that joined that I didn't recognize. We have a lot of uh, return um, podcasters that, that join and I appreciate you guys. But for the newbie people, should they go private equity or family office? Um, or as I'm thinking, you might answer depends on your project first which one first sorry say that again like uh newbie investor with the project should they position or go after family office or private equity or um is it just so project driven to be specific on which one they should go to or do you suggest one over the other for for someone who doesn't have a long experience of um dealing with capital raising 
So if somebody's just starting out, my recommendation is starting where I did, which is start with, and I kind of segment accredited investors. So not all accredited investors are built the same. So the categories start off with newly accredited. So people that are either newly accredited, just have a million dollars in investable assets, or don't even know they're accredited. So that category is the, a great starting place because a lot of times you know more than they do. Uh, the fact that you know that they're accredited and there's all this access to new investments that they, they didn't realize they have access to. That's a great starting point. So that usually gets you from $1 million to about maybe a 2 or $3 million person. And the reason why I put that in the category is once you start to get to like the 25 to $2 million, they'll probably have an RIA, so a licensed mm -hmm. advisor. And when you ask for a check, like a fifty dollars to a $200,000 check, that money's got to come from somewhere. A lot of people in that range don't have that money sitting in a bank, which means it's probably going to come from an investment account. So they say like, hey, we're going to go and uh, like, this sounds great, Edmund. We really like this real estate stuff. Uh, give us a week and we'll, we'll we'll cut you a check. The next question I usually ask is, where is it coming from? It's like, oh, it's going to come from our, you know, our, our brokerage account. It's going to come from, you know, it, it's going to come from Fidelity or it's going to come from wherever. And if it's coming from an RIA, I used to be an RIA. So if somebody says, hey, Edmund, uh, we want to liquidate $200,000. And I said, great, sure, absolutely, it's your money. But before it goes out, let me ask you, what, what, what is it for? Just so I know what assets to sell. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And they'll say like, oh, we're going to give it to this uh, private equity real estate guy. I'm like, oh, hang on a sec. It's like, I didn't realize like you're paying me to do due diligence on assets. And I would love to take a look at this deal because I see so many scams that are out there. And I put the, the fear of God in them. And now they're second guessing. <laughs> It's like, oh, here's the OM. And here's, like, okay, let me take a look. You got the OM? Great. You got the prospectus, PPM. Send me all the stuff that they sent you because I want to make sure that this stuff is on the up and up. That's what I do for, you already paid me your fee, whether you keep the 200 here or 200 somewhere else. And then I'll just start shooting you out of the water. And the higher the net worth the person, the more experienced and the more skilled that RIA is going to be. And I could probably blow you out of the water if you only have one or two years experience. That's why you want to deal with people that are relatively newer experienced. If you get to the $10 million person, a $10 million person is going to have an RIA, maybe two. It's going to have a tax account. It's going to have a tax lawyer and you know some serious folks in there. And if you don't sound like all of them and hold your own, all of them are going to blow you out of the water. Mm. We haven't even got to family office yet. When you get to family office, now you got some, it's essentially institutional money. And right. if you go in there and you don't even know what's left or right, you can easily get squashed. It's just like if if you and I went and we decided, you know what, we're going to be the play the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, even on a preview game, you and I are going to get squashed, right? right? It's just it's just crazy. Like we, we might put on the pads and we might look okay, but you know, you, you go up there, if we haven't practiced, we haven't been doing it for 10 years, we're going to get creamed, right? So be very cautious of where you're going to be, right? So mm. play within your weight range, play within your experience, and then slowly build up. Wow, that's amazing. Um, let's see. Okay, trying to make sure we don't. Um, I try to be respectful of uh, everyone's time, um, including the person that I'm interviewing, because <laughs> I want you back and I want you to be like, well, first of all, he had me on at nine o'clock at night. <laughs> um, how has transitioning from, um, and I know it's been a while, so you got to think back, but how has transitioning from military, normal, middle-class income um, to where you're at now, how has that affected your life and, and what you've been able to do for your family? Well, I think it's uh, it, it changed significantly what, what wealth has done. 
Um, a lot of that had to be the struggle when we were developing the wealth is to really be accepting of it and trying to uh, trying to be able to figure out is like, okay, you know, we're, we're multimillionaires. And for many years, I never told anybody. And I just kind of kept it secret. And it's like, I, you know, it, it almost felt to me like I was embarrassed about it. Right. And then it started to realize like, you know what, you know, I, I don't know if I want to tell people, I don't know if I want to, cause once you say it, then, you know, you, you, you can't take it back, but then mm-hmm. you're trying to be comfortable and trying to uh, adopt that. It's like, you know what, I, I can't help that. That's who I am. So, and it starts creating into what we're talking, like some of the things I do for family office management which is create legacy, create like in one of the, the key things that I would do for family office is creating a family constitution. So a family constitution can have many different aspects to it. And part of it could be is a family message to future generations. Because right now my kids are like, you know, in their teenage years and they don't want to understand if I if I try to write things down. So what I'm trying to explain to my dad is, is that there's a lot of things that you know and there's a lot of things and a lot of values that you had that a 14 year old is not going to understand. A 24-year-old or a 40-year-old might. So write it down. Because when my son is 40, he's probably you're probably not going to be around. So why don't you write that stuff down? What does this wealth mean to you? What does our wealth mean to you? What does our family legacy mean to you? And write that down. So when my son is 40 and he's wise enough and he's mature enough to read it and understand it, he'll pick that up. So I'll give you an example of some of our family legacy that wasn't taught to me and I had to research it myself. I didn't realize, but our last name, because my parents kind of hid that fact too, our last name, the Chinese character for money is literally our last name. Our last wow, name. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> and our family legacy, it's a vocational last name. It's like Cook, Baker, Schumacher. Mm-hmm. It's a vocational last name where our ancestors were all financial professionals. And my parents didn't tell me that because they were embarrassed about wealth and they don't, mm-hmm. they're not that kind of people, right? Yeah. So for me, as I researched it and I found out, you know what, my grand, my paternal grandfather, he was in insurance. He was a money manager. And so am I. And I'm bringing that back. And I'm, I'm, I'm telling my, and this is what I learned from the military. In the Canadian military, we have a lot of pride in our regimental history. This is, you know, we, we, we carry our regimental honors. These are the people that went before us. Because there's this little thing that's like, you don't want to let them down. There's so many battle honors that this regiment has. And if you want to be a member of it, you've got to maintain those battle honors. Because if you if you disgrace us, then you're, you wear the same cap badge or you wear the same regiment as, as all these other honorable people. And mm-hmm. you've got to... You've got to you've got to live up to that that you know to to, to become the new generation of that. So mm-hmm. we learn all those things when you learn the the history of where we come from, the Second World War, where we come from, all the single every single battle. And when we go in there, it's like I got to honor all the people that came before me. That's mm-hmm. part of the family constitution. So and I think a lot of people inherently know, like a lot of orphans, for an example, they have this inherent desire to understand where they come from. It's just this human nature. It's like, where do I come from? And if right. you can start to show that, here's the four generations. You come from multi-generations of, of wealth managers, of money managers. Heck, it's, our, it's our, literally our last name. And I'm not saying that you have to do this, but as long as you understand where our family comes from, and this is you know, where this wealth has been created, it's because we've traditionally been a, a family of, of money managers. If my kid wants to do something else, that's up to him but I at least want him to understand where that money comes from or where our wealth comes from, where our legacy comes from. Mm, Because you carry that with you in your genetics and you're, you know, that's, that's deep. Wow. Um, Before I let you go, I want to dig into 
um, your coaching and what services, uh, because you, you know, you provide coaching. Uh, can you go into that a little bit and explain to the, the viewers and the people who are going to listen to the podcast later um, what you do and how they can benefit and um, how you can take them either from where they're at to the next level or from zero? Yeah. yeah. So thanks for asking. I, I, I do have some other tips that I would like to present. So some starter oh, tips that I'd like to, to work with people uh, and to give you an idea of what, what coaching is like. So my coaching program mimics very closely to the official money management system, like essentially Wall Street advisors. If you became a rookie broker, how they would train, it's essentially the same program as I used to do that. So I use all the best practices. It's usually anywhere from a six month to a 12 month engagement. So if you became an RIA, you'd get your, your branch manager would mentor you or shadow you for about a year. And depending on the frequency, and usually you meet like once a once a week for an hour and we just go through, you know, what are you saying? Uh, what's your value proposition? What's unique to you? And what is your client base? What is your prospect base? And those are all different. So my coaching style is very customized to the individual. It, it depends on who you are and who you want to talk to and who your audience is. And the biggest I think the biggest key to really good client relationship and really good prospecting becomes other centric to know your audience, to know your avatar very, very well. And there's this one adage that I, I start when explain to people, which is when you come into a very technical world like finance, a lot of numbers, a lot of charts, a lot of technical jargon, and it can get really, really confusing for people. And the adage that is really important to understand is, is this, uh, th this term, Logic will get people to think. Emotion will get people to act. And when you're raising capital, you need people to act. You need people to write a check. You need people to, to, to sign over their accounts. And what I commonly see as a default is people will default to logic. So they'll try to explain a real estate syndication and they'll explain IIR, they'll explain cash on cash, they'll explain like all these different you know, graphs and charts and everybody will start spinning. That's not how I did it. I do a little bit of it. I have to explain some of the key concepts just for due diligence and from compliance sake so that they understand some of the, the metrics, the really important stuff. What's really important though is being able to translate what all those numbers mean and then be able to know your audience and know what is really, really important to them and be able to show them that what these numbers represent and how that affects that person and be able to make it emotional. So I'll give you an example. So quick example is, is that one of the pain points for family office is this concept that this term that we call shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves, which is 90% of family offices will fail within three generations, right? That's the, that's the first metric that most family office managers got to beat, which is 10% of family offices only succeed after the third generation. So understanding that, what you can say, for an example, to a patriarch of the family is, is that, you know what, there's all these charts, there's how real estate works, cash flow, cash flow, cash flow, all this stuff. It's like, you know what, let's just take pause for a second. Mr. Jones, I really want to show you what all these charts basically means. These charts and passive cash flow basically means that if you put a significant component of your family office and family legacy into passive cash flow, that cash flow keeps coming out and you'll never touch the principal. It basically means that three, four generations from now, it'll still be pumping out blood. Mm. That's what that means. And that is tying in the technical component to key in the, the, what that benefit means. In, in the sales parlance, we call that features versus benefits. Features is innocuous, it's unemotional, it's just technical components. What benefits are is benefits will evoke an emotional reaction. 
And when you get an emotional reaction out of other people, that's how you become memorable because mm. people will remember those things instead of saying, oh, these are all the technical components. You know, it's like, take a look at the side of any kind of computer box and read all those points. It's like, it doesn't mean anything to me. But right. if you can translate all those technical, well, this is what it basically means. It means this. And if you can make it unique and customized for the pain point of the individual, and that individual has an emotional response to that, that's how you start building very, very deep rapport. Hmm. I hope everybody's taking notes. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, so this is part of the foundation of what you teach when you, when you begin coaching. Absolutely. So I coach some people that come from a very, a lot of the times I, I'll, I will teach people that come from a very technical background. So a lot mm -hmm. of engineers, a lot of, uh, a lot of accountants, and I, I'll explain to them, this is going to feel very foreign to you about mm -hmm. talking about emotion. It'll make you feel like you're trying to swim backwards. But if you want to be capital raising, and if you want to interact and be client facing at the pro level, at family office and private equity pro level, you've got to be very good at going back and forth between technical features and basically tying every single technical feature to a benefit of why should they care. And mm -hmm. in order to make sure that that hits well, the best articulated benefits are not a benefit that is just generic. It's a benefit that's customized exactly to that audience because you know them and you're subtly implying, I know you and I know that this is your pain point. This is the reason why I brought this feature because it will solve that pain that you have. Mm. So your, your typical client base, I guess we'll call it, is usually technical people transitioning their their technical brain into capital raising and you're using that technical knowledge to be able to understand the the jargon the lingo and and how um the formulas and equations of whatever industry they're basically raising capital for but teaching them how to inject the emotional part to be better capital raisers that kind of in a nutshell it can be. So currently I have a lot of clients that are that are doing that, but I also have some other clients that are a lot further ahead. Right. So I have some clients that are basically the same personality type as I am. And I'm showing I'm showing him the ropes. Like I've got one guy right now, he's a former aircraft carrier pilot, and he's in a he's retired now, but he is in a very posh kind of environment from his family. And he's like the type of guy that, you know, has that background where eventually ends up becoming a, a U.S. senator, right? He's on his way to becoming, and he spends all his time at a country club. So I explained to him, it's like, okay, this is how you not burn all those relationships fast, right? So I will get you to say, and I'll teach him a lot more of the, the scripts to use and a lot more of the positioning to use. So for him, he's, he doesn't have that challenge because his person, he's an extrovert, uh, very articulate, very similar to, to I am. So mm -hmm. I utilize uh, MBTI, so a Myers-Briggs type indicator. Myers-Briggs type indicator is a, is a personality style. There's 16 different personality types. And if you haven't done it before or you haven't done it recently, you can even do a free test. So go out, and that's the beginning of a SWOT analysis. So one of the things I do is a personal SWOT analysis. And the way that we would start is that you go take an MBTI test. So you can even Google it, just like MBTI free test. It'll take you to 16 personalities, take the personality type, answer the questions, and then read that type read that personality, see if it describes you well. And if you agree with it, it will show you your, your default strengths and your weaknesses. Take that and throw that into your personal SWAT. That's the beginning of a great sales plan. And then you mm. develop it and build it from there. Mm. That's amazing. Um, what are some don'ts 
for investors or capital raisers? Well, you know what? I don't think I've ever had anybody asking that question. What are some don'ts? Um, I think that the, the don'ts would be is, I, I'd rather put it the other way, which is what are the major important things is continuous learning. So a don't would be thinking that you know enough. And here's where I say, like, no matter how experienced you are at capital raising, you're never good enough. Just like Tom Brady still needs to practice. Tom Brady mm -hmm. is still not good. Like he's got how many rings and he still will have a coach and he will still go to spring training. It's not like he's like, hey, you know what? I got seven rings. I don't need to show up for spring training. Just tell me when the first game is. And, right. and oh, by the way, I don't need a coach. Like nobody does that, right? Nobody <laughs> right. does that in pro ball. And it's the same thing when it comes to capital raising. It's just like, you have to be have an open mind. So what the don't is, don't think that you're smart enough and you know enough and you can do it on your own, right? Even the top athletes, every single top performing athlete has a coach and goes to practice and continuously practice and believes that they're still not good enough. Wow. All right. I got one last question and then we'll move to, um, to closing and see if anybody has any questions or comments. Um, what is a gold nugget that you would like to leave with uh, the listeners and viewers? I think the biggest advantage that you can do, so the biggest advantage for me uh, is not only learning from millionaires, and if you don't have access like I did to millionaires, then because of that adage we were talking, like you're the average of the five people you spend your time with. Well, if you look around at the people and then you don't really have a lot of those high net worth contacts, it, you can still find them. We were talking about life hacks and where you can find those life hacks is spend time with people that have written a lot of that material. So if you can't find a mentor, you can still go to the public library and find those great mentors and start reading mm -hmm. things like Ray Dahlia, Jim Collins, all those books, just keep reading and reading and reading. So develop a thirst for learning, perpetual learning, and just keep reading and reading and reading and never stop. That will give you the biggest advantage. We are no longer in the industrial age. We have been in the information age. So the people that will succeed in the information age are people that can absorb information the fastest. There's a really good quote by Earl Nightingale. And Earl Nightingale says that if you spend an extra hour every day in the study of your craft, you will become a national expert in five years or less, from three to five years, a national expert, one hour a day. Wow. The biggest reason why most people don't do that is because they are unable to be consistent to do a day every day for three years, so three to five years. Most people give up within a couple of months, right? But if you can spend one hour a day every day, and I did one more than one hour a day for 20 years, and that's right. where I am where I am, right? Consistency right. is the key component of that. So just keep reading and never stop. For those who are listening, watching, um, to the students that I'm, I do mentor, I always tell them, you have never and will never meet someone who is passionate about their craft and works on their craft um, continuously who has not hit success. Like they might hit success and, and have a, a issue and get bankrupt or whatever because of the market, but you would never meet somebody who's that dedicated, um, you know, whatever their craft is and not be successful. So yeah, I totally agree. Um, as I am opening up the, um, I wish I could, I wish I had to unmute everybody, <laughs> but I don't. Um, after I unmute everyone, I will, um, let everybody know that you're unmuted and if you have any questions. But as I'm doing this, uh, Ed, can you tell everyone 
um, how they can get in contact with you for, uh, for coaching if they're interested? Yeah, absolutely. The best way to reach out to me is uh, through LinkedIn. So okay. you just look up my name, Edmund Chen, E-M-U-N-D-C-H-I-E-N, and then uh, send me a request and then uh, you know, send a message and I'll be happy to chat. Cool. Thank you. Is there, uh, everybody is um, able to unmute themselves now um, one at a time, but does anybody have any questions for Ed or comments? And uh, it's, it's quite a few uh, regulars on here. So just thank you all my regulars. I appreciate you guys coming back. <laughs> any questions? So I think Angel uh, had a question in the, the chat there, which, which I can uh, which I can answer there. So Angel is asking, how long does it does it take someone to become truly skilled at being able to switch in communications to cadence your topics, all these different types of things? Uh, if you were to take Malcolm Gladwell's uh, concept in Outliers, uh, it's a common uh, it's a common reference now. Malcolm Gladwell says ten thousand hours, which represents about ten years of of practice. Uh, to be really, really good at it. And it can sound a little daunting, but really what it comes down to is it depends on what level of skill you want to be at. So there's four stages of learning. Uh, if, for those of you who haven't gone through those four stages, anything that you've ever learned, you've gone through these four stages. And the four stages of learning are unconscious, incompetent, which basically means that you don't even know what you don't know. And then you get conscious of your incompetence. So somebody tells you, it's like, hey, this is how it all works, but you don't know how to do it. So you're incompetent, but you're conscious of what you don't know. Then after you get some practice into it, you get conscious competent. So everybody who took a driver's test, you were conscious competent, meaning you passed, but you were sweating. You really had to focus and you were really <laughs> concentrate. But on a great day, you can drive a car, right? So that's conscious <laughs> competent. So that would be the beginnings of being able to raise capital. So you've got a couple of checks. You really, really had to focus. You're sweating the whole way, but you're conscious competent. You had some people that were endorsing you. But then to get from conscious competent to unconscious competent, meaning that you can do it in your sleep and it's just natural for you, incredibly natural. Even on your worst day, you can still do it well. And this is what Mihai Csikszentmihalyi talks about the state of flow. So being very, very skilled at something that you can inherently do. That leap takes a lot of practice. So mm. going from conscious competent to unconscious competent takes years and years of practice and just mm. being consistent at it and never giving up. I'm going to need Elon Musk to hurry up with the neural link so we can just download this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anybody? And thanks for the question, uh, Angel, who is uh, super awesome. Can't wait for the 15th. Angel's coming to speak <laughs> at Rare Cars and Real Estate for Women in Real Estate. Um, but we'll talk about that later. Um, does anybody else have any questions? I just wanted to say thank you and in support and you validated a lot that I have going on right now in my journey and you're quoting all my favorite same books and I want to thank Presley and I owe you an email Presley but um, yes I've been waiting on it <laughs> um, I will be looking up um, Edmund on LinkedIn as well thank you thanks Jay very I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I got a question. Go ahead. Where would be the best place to look for angel type investors if you have a lot of new startup, new technology, Web3, crypto that you're running into for uh, new opportunities to, uh, you know, find investors? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, 
for the tech VC space, I, you know, dis full disclosure, VC is not my strong suit. I have d dabbled in it though. Uh, where I find that there's a lot of crossover is that a lot of local communities and cities, especially larger cities, will have angel investing networks. So angel investing pitches, we have one here in Toronto. I know that there's uh, other ones in, in, in major city centers, but what they basically do is that they'll have like an angel investor day and they gather together a whole bunch of pre-qualified angel investors, uh, essentially accredited investors. And then they'll have like a whole day of presentations. So there's two sides to it. One of them would be a lot of the tech people that are looking for seed funding. Um, we call it the, uh, the, the three F money. So friends, friends, families, and fools. So it's the three F money, it's early money there. And what they do is they go out and they pitch for that early money. And a lot of times it's anywhere from a $5,000 commitment to $25,000 angel commitment, but the multiples are massive because it's early money. So they're looking for a lot of seed money. So what I ended up doing is I ended up going there because I represented angel money and they, they let me in. So I would go in and you can see how the presentations are done. You can see the formats, you can see the questions. So the entire room is filled with a whole bunch of angels. So when they ask their questions, you can start to understand their thought process. And if you spend enough time in that room, you can start asking the exact same questions because you start to associate and you start to realize, okay, they're missing this piece or they're missing that piece. And you start to get comfortable with the format of all the decks and how, how big the decks are, whether it's a five, you know, you'll, you'll know the difference between a good presentation and a bad presentation, because a good presentation will probably have f uh, five slides and a bad one will have 30. And you recognize, you know what, 30 is probably the wrong size. And that's what good angel, angel investor networks are good for. So if you can find one and try to join and try to get along there, and you can, you can learn a lot from those groups and communities. Thanks. Ed, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it really blew my mind when I finally realized that investors were looking for investments just as bad as and and people who had projects or investments were looking for investors. Now, obviously, if you're you know VC or you know PE fund or something like that, um, you have many to choose from many deals and, and projects to choose from, but you're still looking for a deal because that's how you grow and, and keep your wealth. Um, do you find that to be a correct statement? I think that a lot of it comes down to, like what one of my mentors said to me is like, Ed, you've got to understand that when you're dealing in real estate syndications, for example, the projects across the United States are very similar. They're all like, like for us, especially for us. So in, in Dallas, Fort Worth, there's a lot of gated communities they're like 100 to 200 units, walk up two story. They're all over the, the Sun Belt of the United States, anything from Phoenix all the way to Kentucky, right? So they mm. said that, you know what? They all look the same. They're all very similar. And once you understand that, you have to recognize that what you're selling is you're not selling those assets. What you're selling is you're selling you because that's the difference. Mm. So mm -hmm. a big part of what I understand when it comes to VC is not necessarily just the idea. That is a little bit more important than when it comes to private equity. Do you have something that's unique? But the biggest piece of it is who is who is that person? Do you have a sober opinion of who you are? So I'm evaluating the people that are involved as much as I'm evaluating the actual investment as well. It's like, can I trust you? Uh, what kind of individual are you? Those types of things are, will reveal to you a little bit more. So for me, my clients, a lot of the times is that they are essentially looking to buy me. They're looking to buy the investment. And I had one of my clients say that. It's like, Ed, I could buy these real estate deals from pretty much anybody. 
But right. the reason why I get through you is because these other guys don't care about me. I can tell that they just want to make a commission. You seem genuinely different. You generally care about our family. And that meant a lot to me because I was really striving to do that. And I had learned that from the military, which is when you become a military leader, you have a serious responsibility for the welfare of the people that are that you're leading. And I just mm -hmm. took that core philosophy and I brought that with me into money management. Awesome. I, I really appreciate that. Um, does anybody else have a question or comment? Hey, Edmund, I really love hearing you speak. You always give me new ideas to use, and I just love being able to employ them with a different level of confidence because I know that they worked for you, and so I want to try them also. <laughs> That's great, Angel. Thanks for, uh, thanks for being here. <clears throat> Josh, I think Josh has his uh, hand up. You have a question? Hey, Josh. Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, you, you, uh, you had mentioned here uh, again about the, um, the fund belt, but I was, my original question was going to be, you were in Canada and you were investing in Dallas-Fort Worth. Why, why did you guys pick out of the country and that market specifically? Because Texas is yeah. awesome. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, Texas is yeah, awesome. Yeah, because also, everything's better in Texas. Yeah, help me understand <laughs> what the what the fund uh, belt is. Yeah, so uh, a big part of that is, is if you look at uh, Toronto real estate or Canadian real estate, the real estate tends to be a relatively uh, more expensive because it's got to go through all four seasons. So there's a lot of ex expansion, a lot of contraction. It's really expensive kind of real estate. If you go to take a look at Texas, for an example, if you go to Dallas, Fort Worth, they're all just concrete slabs. There's no basement. Uh, it's just two-story walk-ups. There's no elevators. Uh, there's no hallways. It's just you, you walk right up to your unit. And the per unit cost was much cheaper. So it made a lot of sense. And the group started in Texas really because of the failed savings and loan crisis. So back in the late 90s, there's a big SNL crisis that they were able to buy a whole bunch of assets and, and also get investors at the time. So that's why they started. And then they wanted to expand to take a look at other areas. They were looking at Phoenix. We were looking at Phoenix, uh, took a look at Hawaii, but Hawaii was you know a little too expensive. So we want just real estate that's relatively easy to maintain that's relatively inexpensive and that you could buy and, and you know, you could buy for you know you buy a lot of acreage and that for us was that part when in, in dallas right we didn't we wanted to stay a, a farther away from the coast so that's why we didn't go to you know places like houston or further to the to the code further south we just stuck to in relatively inland and that was tended to be a sweet spot for us and you know we weren't going to exhaust us so why don't we just become a specialist in that area so we brought a lot of canadian money and invested into that in that space Dallas still Thanks. has a Dallas is a hot market, but I, I believe it still has a lot of growth left in it as well. Any other questions, or uh, did you have any other questions, Josh? I just want to say I understand why Presley would want to um, value your time, which we all do, and to to have you back again another time because this is really deep stuff and it's not easy to grasp when you hear it for the first time. I've heard a lot of it, but not all of it. So it's very enlightening and I appreciate Presley's knowledge as well. Thank you. Thanks, Jay. Jay has a fund as well. I'm telling all her this. <laughs> <laughs> Jay knows I promote everybody. I look, I don't, I don't, I don't have any uh any discrepancies. <laughs> Anybody else with a question or comment? Um, because it's probably what 10 something and uh Ed's time.
Um, but I do want to make sure that everybody's question is answered. Um, at the same time, I want to make sure he's um, he gets back to his family. Three, two, one. All right, Ed, I appreciate you so much. Um, you know that we so for everybody to know, we me and Ed had a conversation last week. Thanks to Angel, who's amazing, um, and did not expect him to have to be on the podcast this soon. Um, I told him I definitely wanted him on a podcast, but I'm so grateful that he was able to make time for us this week because I think I'm we're booked up. Thankfully, we're booked up to like. October, mid-October, end October, something like that. Um, so also in saying, if you, Ed, or if anybody else knows someone who has a um, significant amount of experience that they could share, um, because obviously the, the platform is set up to provide experience and wisdom um, from a, an experienced person, please shoot out a, a message to me and uh, we'll get them on the, the platform. But Ed, I appreciate you so much. Thank you for um, spending time away from your family. Um, I was, wasn't was sure if my dog was going to shut up and my uh, two-year-old was going to shut up long enough uh, so we could finish the podcast, but I really appreciate you having you on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's uh, it's great to be here and I'm glad that people got uh, got something out of it. Yes, thank you. Um, and for everybody who joined late, this is Juice. Um, I, I, I like to have it. Um, I'm a very aesthetics person. And just having having this ugly bottle, it's, it's, it's not sexy. Um, no judging. Yeah. No judging. <laughs> so, yeah, this is Juice. I don't drink alcohol, but I think it's, it's really nice. My wife doesn't drink alcohol either. And what's funny is she only drinks out of wine glasses. I'm like, you're so bougie. <laughs> uh, and the bougie is, is wearing off on me. But thank you again, Ed. Um, everyone reach out to Ed if, um, if you want to join his program. Um, his, his LinkedIn is the best way, right, Ed? To, um, yep. So yeah, send Ed a message on LinkedIn. This is live on Facebook. So if you're on Facebook, Go to LinkedIn and send Ed a message. And I appreciate you. And I will see you, Ed, later. And everybody else I'll see uh, next week. All right, folks. Have a good night. All right. Thank bye, guys. Bye, everyone. Thank you, bye, guys. All right. Take care.